This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. This is a UK Coaching Coach Developer podcast. My name is Tom Hartley and I'm a senior coach developer at UK Coaching. And for the podcast today, I'm joined by Peter Sturges from the Football Association. Uh, Pete, thanks for, thanks for joining us on the pod. No, thank you for the invite. I'm uh, really quite excited about this, so thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who are probably eager, eagerly listening um, with with kind of lots of lots of takeaways they'd like to take from the call. Um, just just to give everyone a, a flavour of what we'll talk about throughout the next half an hour or so, um, we'll kind of discuss kind of your your background and your journey from coaching into coach development. Uh, a little around your approach to player-centered coaching, um, some discussion around how you uh, look to support coaches, whether that's on a, from a national perspective or from kind of that hands-on coach support at, at the side of a practice, and then just finish off with some quick-fire questions uh, to, to get a real, real flavor of a few different topics. Um, so, Pete, just to kick us off, really, w- would you be okay just to tell us a little about your, your background and, and your journey into coaching and and, and kind of what brings you to, to what you're doing now? Yeah, um, hope I don't bore people. But um, I, uh, when I was thinking about it, it actually begins to reflect what we're talking about with our young players, about don't specialise too early. And I certainly didn't. I, I didn't take my first coaching qualification until I was over 30 years of age. I was still playing at the time, um, and I always wanted to carry on and play as long as I wanted, uh, as long as I could. Um, so I, I suppose you could say I specialised late, but I had a lot of vo- volume and variety in the jobs that I held before then. So I'm a qualified engineer. I did a five-year technical apprenticeship. Um, so. It's great for my wife and my family because I can virtually fix anything or build anything. Um, <laughs> and those, the skills that I learned there have, have had a huge impact on, you know, lots of, in lots of ways throughout the whole of my life. Um, I worked in a foundry. I worked as a painter and decorator, a market trader. I was a, trained as a primary teacher, never actually taught in primary school. Um, I then taught for eight years in FE. Um, I was a self-employed coach, uh, and that really taught me a lot because I literally had a bag of balls and a stack of cones, and I went from school to school throughout the days and weeks for three years, and I, you get a real feel for how to engage children and almost from finding out what they want, develop that into a situation where the children got what they wanted, but I also made sure that they got lots of enjoyment and football returns as well. So quite a varied, uh, a varied route or a varied journey, Tom. Yeah, that's fascinating, Pete, and such variety in the types of roles that you've had as well. I think, um, I think it, it, It's like we're saying to our children about playing other sports. The things I learned as a market trader, for instance, 
or um, working in a foundry, just that, that environment of hard work and really people who had always worked hard. It, it teaches you things that I know that have certainly benefited me later on. Mm. When, so when, when did you get to the point when you settled on coaching? Where, what, what was it about coaching that made you think you, you were going to stay in this profession for a, for a longer period of time? Um, I think it was when I realised that I, I got a lot from it. So I was a bit selfish because I actually derived a lot of pleasure and enjoyment from organising activities, particularly for younger children. But I actually finished my playing career as a player coach. And so I, I had a, a bit of a gentle introduction anyway, because my teammates, although there was a lot of banter, they were very kind um, when I was player coach. And I, I tried to find a balance between giving the players what they wanted, but also making sure that we were fully prepared for, for games. And I think looking back now, that's exactly what I'm trying to do with young children make it seem as though they have huge power and involvement into the session. But I know I'm also giving them a good deal. Uh, interesting. I, I, I think, what, what did it feel like for you from that transition from being, being a player to moving into being a coach within that team where you were, you were part of the team? Did you feel like Pete, the ex-player who was having a go at coaching, or did you, did you feel like Pete, the coach, Who's, who's trying to, trying to um, support others in a different way? Um, it had to be the first time because if I'd have considered myself as a coach then, I would have been a very poor one because I, I went through exactly what a lot of coaches are going through now. You are finding your way. You are so worried that you might run out of content, even within an hour. I look at an hour now and think, well, I could fill that with this, with this, with that. There have been so many times when I'm thinking, I'm going to run out of material here, or I haven't got my next activity, or, you know. So I, I've been through the same kind of journey that all every other inexperienced coach has been through. And so I think that gives me a certain empathy as to what they're going through in, in anything I do regarding coach education. Mm. And at times it was a very, very painful uh, experience, but I did want to make it enjoyable right from the get go. And I did want it to involve a ball and to be high energy and highly motivating. So I, I don't know whether that comes from me, um, but it's something that certainly stayed with me. I was going to ask this question right at the end, but I think it feels like a really good time to ask it now. If if you were to give your yourself when you started coaching a piece of advice um, or something you would have, you would have known then that would have really helped you on your way, what what might you have, have told yourself? Well, um, probably, probably because I. I I had a very painful experience that, that brought this home to me, that it is more about them than it is about me. And you have to, you have to bring them into the whole event 
rather than see coaching as you doing something to them. They have to be real active agents in, in the whole process. And I don't think I realized that because I think it was at a time when the, the traditional approach was the coach held all the knowledge and the power. And even though my personality didn't run that down the throats of the players, it was certainly the environment through which I did all my coaching qualifications. But even then, it didn't sit right with me. So I, th I think now we've really realised that the players are very important in this whole process. Um, so I had, to, I had to painfully discover that myself. And yet deep inside, I felt there was always something in that. that it's interesting that. I, we, we had a discussion in a commun community of practice last week and the, the discussion point was around, are the players or the athletes, are they part of the coach's environment or is the coach part of the player's environment? Or is it somewhere in between those two, which is, which is where, where the, the magic happens? Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting, uh, interesting one because uh, we, we look for ways to engage them. And one of the easiest ways is to say, look, how can we make this work for you? And then my responsibility is to, to lean more towards that rather than me assuming I know what's best for them. They have to be, it has to be more of a partnership where their wants, needs um, are very front and centre. But that does fly in the face of, you know, past traditional approaches to coach education. And I would imagine with that, it's almost the, the premise of, social learning so actually the learning experience is constructed together rather than rather than a, a coach a senior person if you like as you say giving people the information it, it's a, it's a two-way process it is and the, there's two aspects to that Tom there's that social aspect where it's about us as a team but it's also the individual components of that so you've you're on your own development journey and it just so happens that at this point in time, you are doing that alongside 16 others. And every weekend we get together and play together. So there has to be a certain kind of synergy. And yeah, your individual needs are just part of that whole thing. Mm. I think that's fascinating. And, and maybe as coaches, sometimes we, we get caught up in the, in the moment of, thinking about like you said earlier Pete, the next practice or the next next thing to fill our, our our coaching session rather than really thinking about what's important to the players and, and and the people in front of us to to give them the best possible experience yeah I, I know um I I did three years as a sole trader um with my own soccer coaching company which is still going today actually um and I, I found I found ways initially to meet the needs of lots of different children um, going into schools. Some children loved being physically active, some didn't. Some children's first reaction to saying, let's have a go at this was immediately, I can't do that. So how do you deal with that? So you, you find lots of different ways to press the right buttons to try to get as much engagement and as motivation and as much motivation and energy into the session as possible. 
those three years were absolutely brilliant for me. It sounds a little like an apprenticeship where you're just just trying stuff out, almost a coaching laboratory in a way that you just you're just testing stuff and seeing how it goes to see what works best. Yeah, I'd had two summers in in the states uh, working with their soccer camps. Um, that was also a real learning experience. I didn't learn anything about football, but I learned loads about kids. Um, and although I was leading the camps, I always took the very, very youngest. And I mean, I'm grey headed now. Um, I think I started losing my hair then and it certainly started to go grey then. But you know what? <laughs> if you if you begin to enter their world, it relieves a whole lot of pain because you can build a real affinity and relationship with them that allows you to, to, to take them on the journey with you, but also help to make it feel as though it's their journey, not mine. Yeah, yeah. Does, that, does that contribute then, Pete, to almost creating the right environment for learning and helping helping the, the young people that you're working with feel really safe that they can try stuff out and not worry about making a mistake. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, before before we, we delve a little bit deeper into that, I, I did I went to um, I went to South Africa twice for the um, for the FA. I went to Botswana and Lesotho, um, and you know this whole thing about it, it's about the players, it's about ownership and responsibility and, and individuality. I took that from our culture into their culture. And on the first morning, their coaches said to me quite clearly, Pete, if we ask the coach, if we ask the players, what do you think? We'll end up getting the sack because <laughs> we hold all the power and we have to be seen as holding all the power. So that, that was a bit of a, a wake up call for me because quite naively, I went over there thinking, oh, we'll get complete buy-in because this works and it's the way forward and all of this. But in other cultures, it, it may not be like that. So I, th I think we have to keep one eye on that as well, um, even though we might firmly believe that, you know, there is some real value in this approach. Out of interest, what, what, what did you do in that situation? Was it a case of, of flexing your approach slightly and, and trying to fit around what they saw as good or, or did you try a bit of both yeah. and, and show them what, what, what you could bring to the table in terms of sharing that environment? Well, it was really interesting because I tried to create a dynamic, even though we were all equal, we were all adults. I tried to create an environment where the way I worked with them and drew them into it and the way that they seemed to benefit from that almost replicated what I was asking him to do with the players, but I wasn't brave enough to say, look, now take this and use it as a methodology with your players. But at the end of it, we did, we did talk about how did it feel when the coach included you or you were asked your opinion on this and, you know, to demonstrate this and you were given feedback and praise. So it was a two-week trip but even at the end of it, there was some slight shift, um, but not enough that they could take it on mass and say, right, I, I now feel comfortable with to work this way with my players and really book the trend that was deeply ingrained within their culture. So, And I, I have to accept that. 
Mm. Is is there a case of almost having some perspective with the reflection to say, well, actually, maybe you didn't achieve everything you were aiming to when you went out there, but there was some some learning taking place which moved them closer to where you you felt was important to when you started the the trip? Yes, definitely. Um, But not enough for them to really embrace it fully. Um, but I'm still in touch with some of the coaches now. And, uh, you know, we, we still chat about that, that first morning where they must have seen the colour drain out of my face, <laughs> literally, as I was thinking, what am I going to do for the next two weeks? But uh, it's the same as coaches are going through right across, you know, the, all levels of the game. We have these, like, light bulb moments and really key experiences that that shape us and you know that was just one of them for me changing direction pete from what what i was going to ask you next when when you're developing coaches or or working with with players who maybe have a set expectation of what good looks like how how would you approach helping them change a culture or or change a mindset towards what good looks like Wow. Um, I, th- I, I mean, I, I wouldn't consider myself an arrogant person anyway, and I certainly, I, I certainly wouldn't be arrogant enough to just go in and say, look, this is, this is how you've got to do it. I think that's a, a great example of really starting to work from where they are, not immediately say, I know where you are, but we've, we've got to move you here. I think it might take however long it takes of you working from where they're at and slowly over a longer period of time showing that there is something in a slightly different approach. But I think we talk about long-term athlete development. I think that might be long-term coach development where we, if you are challenging some deeply ingrained cultural traits, that's not going to change overnight. Um, and sometimes the decision makers are they're not the people that you can get access to so that you can open up this way of thinking so the coach might actually believe it but the environment that they're working in away from you is not conducive to any change anyway we we had a conversation with grant downey i don't know if you know grant or know the name yeah uh, so we had a conversation with grant this week on, on one of our curious coaches coaches club conversations and Grant was talking about culture change and and the importance of of having that that buy-in from everybody within the organization so if if a if a small percentage or small fraction of the organization want to affect change then it might have a very small impact but actually it has to be across the whole organization to, to really stick yeah um it's interesting though Pete you you just painted a picture in my mind about that long-term coach development model and maybe what that could look like and and actually what what coaches would think or coach developers would think would be really important to to fit into that yeah i I mean i mentioned earlier that the, the the coaching qualification pathway i went through is very different to the one now i actually broke my leg on my ua for b um and we at then you did the the base course one weekend and then you came back the following weekend um, for your assessment. 
I actually did my assessment on crutches with my foot in a pot um, and I was marked down for not doing any demonstrations. (laughs) Really? Even though you had your foot in a pot? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. What a a different world we live in now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I won't tell you who the uh, the assessor was, but okay. uh, yeah, I do see him around. Actually, we do laugh about it. <laughs> is there anything, Pete, that obviously the world of coaching and coach development has changed a huge amount over the last five, ten years? Especially with from from my experiences of the, the kind of the courses and the coach education that the FA deliver. Uh, from from your experience and and in in your opinion, if we were to fast forward. 10 years to 2030 is there anything that we're doing now either on the grass with our players or in a in a coach development setting that actually might feel really outdated oh um yeah i I think the way that we gather coaches and, and i am thinking about our courses at st george's because we'll do um three or four days at St. George's on a residential course for the Advanced Youth Award. And from nine o'clock in the morning till 7.30 at night, we've all got our foot to the floor, full throttle, content, 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 um, review, review, review. And we just cram so much information in. I think that form of learning where it's very, very intense, and uh, very full on, I think that will become more individualized and it will be at the, the pace and the depth chosen by the individual um, rather than us still gathering people together for days on end saying, we think this is what you need. And I know there has to be a balance between that because we're saying this content is appropriate for this level of qualification. But I I think we can open up the dialogue so much more and find out what coaches actually want to fill the gaps in their knowledge and experiences rather than us, you know, assuming that we've got all the answers. I think we are getting better at it, but I can see real changes regarding personalised and individual learning in the future. I think we, we're just beginning to see the power of that now. Pete, when you say that, it makes me feel really excited. <laughs> I think the, the, <laughs> the, the, the capacity to, to individualise what, what a learning journey looks like to, to meet the standard of the qualification, but it's really centred around the, the knowledge, the gaps in knowledge or the interest of the coach. That, that, yeah. That's fantastic. That, that's an amazing, amazing idea or thought or direction to go in. Yeah. I remember when I was doing my master's, um, I visited quite a few schools and one of the best schools I went into, the, the teacher had them all sat down on the uh, on the floor at the quarter to nine in the morning and I, I almost fell off my chair because she said to the kids, I think there were 26 in the class, what do you want to learn about today? And the hands shot up. And as she went round one or two children, they were so different. I remember one child wanted to learn about leaves. Somebody else wanted to learn about the solar system. Somebody else wanted to something else. And I thought, how are you going to deal with this? (laughs) 
And the day was one of the best learning experiences for me because I was just drawn into the joy of learning and the excitement that had been generated by the teacher picking up teaching and learning and throwing it into the lap of the children. And it was so special, Tom. It was, it was just great. That's fantastic. I, I can imagine as well for the children that that environment is, is rich with, um, as you say, a joy of learning and, and they're, they're fully engaged in, in everything that happens in the day because they've had a hand in, in what it looks like. Yeah. And they were highly motivated because it meant something to them, the learning. And I think that's the key with personalised learning. It has to mean something to you. So if we were to draw that into a, into a sports context and you've got your, your coach stood in front of the group and maybe the coach has got an idea of what they want to help the players get better at tonight, but then they, they open that question out. What do you want to learn about? What do you want to do tonight? And they get that range of answers and, and, and feedback from the players. How, how would a coach go about accommodating that and, and maintaining some of the things that were important to them in the practice? Yeah, I think if you opened it up like that, Tom, it may cause one or two problems because I, I've, been, I've been through this experience. I think there's, a, there's a, a small step before that in a discussion with the players about what kind of group of players and what kind of team do we want to be because I think as soon as you've got consensus on that from the group, both in the way that we behave and the way that we want to play, you can say, well, if we want to play that way, what do you think we've got to be good at? What do you think we need to get better at? What do you think we need to practice? Because that then begins to form the, the weeks and, and months of training that will follow. But there, there can be constant check-ins with the players to say, if we do this, is it, is it helping our overall objective of being this type of team and playing this kind of way? And so you are giving lots of autonomy and ownership to the players because they're shaping what the end product looks like. Do you think as a coach that the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a risk with that or a perceived risk that all of a sudden you, you hand over control and then it becomes really difficult to manage. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I think some coaches would be terrified by that approach. And to be fair, it does need quite a high level of either bloody mindedness and, you know, uh, you're just going to go for it or a certain amount of skill. Um, I, I know with the experience I had, the, we, we had developed a really strong relationship with the players, so it, it was easier. Um, but I think if you're changing from a coach that has all the power, makes all the decisions, controls the whole event, to one that suddenly throws it open like this, the first thing that's going to happen is that the players will think you've had a personality transplant <laughs> and will wonder, you know, what's happened. Um, uh, so it's probably a gradual process where over a period of time leading up to this pivotal moment where you, you open this up, you, you've explored what it might look like and the reaction from the players. Interesting. So I, I suppose with, with trying something new 
or taking a step in the direction of, of, of coaching in a slightly different way, it, it creates this, this moment of almost vulnerability. Well, actually, I'm, I'm trying something where I don't quite know how it's going to pan out, but it's worth the risk, to, worth, worth taking that risk. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, there's two things related to that, Tom, because feeling vulnerable is either something that you will feel and never go near again because it, it, you could perceive it as a sign of weakness and you don't want anybody to see that. But it's also an opportunity for you to model to your players that actually if part of the way that you want to play is to be creative and take risks, you've almost got to model that and put yourself out on a limb so that you're showing that you're prepared to try something that you're not really sure what the outcome might be. Mm. It's quite a powerful statement, isn't it? Do you, do you think, so I don't mean to put you on the spot with this question. It, do, if, if a coach is trying to take a risk and can show that to the group in the way that they're, they're trying something a, li a little new, do you think that would, might empower the children in the group or the players in the group to, to echo that and to maybe then in the way that they play and the way that they respond to the challenges you set feel is equally courageous when they go and try on the field? Um, I'm firmly convinced that those kind of subliminal messages will be transmitted between the coach and the player. Yeah. And, and it can begin in a very small way, Tom, by coaches perhaps at the end of the session saying, um, I'm going to look for a different way of us working next week. So I'm, I'm going to do some research because I'm really curious about this. So I want to try to bring our coaching sessions alive. So I'm going to go away and, and I'm going to have a look at, at what is possible. What you're sending out is um, really strong messages about curiosity and, and exploration and actually admitting that you don't know everything and that there's lots out there that we can all benefit from. And the people who are going to benefit from this approach from me is you lot who are going to come to training next week. Now, that, I think that's a very safe way of beginning this whole process of handing some kind of power and autonomy back over to the players. And, and, and almost if you're being upfront and open and transparent with the process that you're going through, it helps them helps them understand almost where where they fit and what what the environment is like around training and coaching. Yeah, and and it also comes through those you know those those pivotal moments in the session because I, I remember it was quite recently actually. Um, I stopped the session because ultimately you you've always got control because if I blow a whistle or say right and relax everybody will stop anyway. But I remember saying, wow, this isn't working, is it? And I started laughing. And they didn't know it. For me, it was a bit of a nervous laugh. And I was like, oh, my God, this really isn't working. And, and I thought, oh, my God, I, I hope the kids and the parents, you know, don't think I've just lost my marbles. But you talk about vulnerability. If I want the kids to take a risk and it doesn't work, I don't want them to, to crumble and to never go there again because of, of the experience. So in a way, I thought afterwards, I, I probably need to make more of that and say, oh, crikey, how wrong did I get that? Just to send out another, you know, wave of messages that, do you know what? It's okay to make a mistake. But I just, I just 
nervously laughed, you know, but... Um, that, that, that's a really interesting, and I, I suppose it's, it's demonstrating that the consequences of trying something aren't disastrous if it goes wrong. Absolutely not, yeah. And it does give you an opportunity to then say, we need to change this, What have you got any ideas? Because I had this all planned out, I haven't got another idea. Now, I've used that in two ways, one genuinely, and another to engage the children, because I'll, I'll suddenly stop and say, oh, my God, my mind's gone blank. I have no idea what we were going to do next. Have you got any ideas? And then suddenly, we're in. Mm-hmm. So, so this this approach and and the coach asking more questions and and really sincerely um, valuing the feedback of the the players in their care. It feels like the role of the coaches is maybe a, a little different. It's, it's, they're, they're not necessarily a traditional coach giving all the information. Their, their role and the way that they manoeuvre and support play uh, changes quite a lot. Definitely. Um, I think coaches will need to develop slightly different skills. I think the skill of intervening is still important, but I think when, how, and what you say when you intervene is becoming much more sophisticated now uh, and as such is quite different from before. I remember being on my A licence and it wasn't my session, it was virtually everybody's session that when you started it, the ball went from this player to that player and before he'd even touched it, the second player, we were always we were already saying, and relax or and stop there. <laughs> and I, I've thought about it, Tom, recently, and I'm thinking, I've actually stopped the practice. I have no idea what that guy's going to do with the ball because it hasn't reached him yet. But the coaching formula was stop, stand still, let me... And I'm thinking, I, I can't coach that because he hasn't made a decision yet. I've stopped the ball as it's been on its way. So I think this whole thing around interventions and and it becoming much more sophisticated is a way forward and must be reflected in coaching courses when if if you're out on the ground and you're supporting coaches yourself would you approach the way that you support them in a really similar way Um, almost about when you time your intervention to ask them a question or to to change to, to help them consider a different approach to their delivery um, I have tried it a number of ways, Tom. Um, I've tried it where you, you observe, you make copious notes, and, and then you know, you'll offer some observations um, at the end of the session. I've obviously asked the coach what they want me to focus upon. Is it their language? Is it your practice setup? Is it the way that you intervene? So rather than trying to look at everything and actually see nothing, the coach is actually giving you some uh, direction as to what they want feedback and and help and support around. I've also found that um, a voice recorder on my phone is brilliant for me to just talk into at certain points in the session um, as an aid memoir to when I, when I do speak with the coach and I've actually just sent them the, the voice messages and said, look, this is what I thought at the time. This is when it occurred and what it related to. Have a listen. And then if there's any further clarification you need, you know. So I think 
I think we, we try to find the right ways because if we are individualizing it, what works for you might not work for somebody else. So I think we have to be quite flexible in that approach. You mentioned about perhaps sometimes having a conversation with the coach and, and, and asking them what they'd like you to focus on or what look out for observe during the practice. That, that, that time before the actual practice takes place, how important is that for making sure that you and the coach are on the same page in terms of what the purpose of the observation is for? Um, it's very important, actually. Uh, and it does really set the tone for the whole thing. And it's, um, it, it also gives me the opportunity to just explore uh, on a slightly wider angle because I, I often talk to coaches about, I'll, I'll open up by saying, tell me about your players because I need to, to find out whether this thing about, if we are going to put the players at the centre of everything we do, then there's almost an implication that you need to know a lot about your players. And so to relax the coach, we may not talk about the session to begin with, but they'll talk about the players. And um, that that's a nice settling in period. I'll say, well, okay, you've told me about these players. Um, you've got this player who tends to do this or will disengage or will bounce a ball. How's that now reflected in the way that you've planned the session? And how are you going to really try to smooth all of those wrinkles out when the children turn up? Um, and so that, that seems a nice lead into, you know, supporting a coach in that way. Mm. Because it is really about their session and their players. And, and I suppose that, that's, that's the crux of everything, isn't it? It's the foundation about their players. It's almost the context of where to build what the coaching looks like because if, if the players need different things to what the coach is delivering there's a there's a bit of a mismatch and a misalignment yeah i went to observe a coach once i obviously won't mention his name but he was working with under 12 players and he was quite nervous so i said right you get yourself ready i'm he sent the players on a jog around the pitch so this is a few years ago because we don't often get that now and i said oh can i can I jog around with the players? And uh, he looked at me and, I, and then he said, yeah, of course you can. So I was jogging around with the players and there was a, a player at the front of the group who said, and get your knees up just before the coach shouted across, raise your knees. And we all started chuckling. And then about 10 seconds later, he said, heel flicks, the, the player at the front and the coach then said, okay, heel flicks at the back now. <laughs> and the, the players knew everything that was going to happen in the warm-up. And I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't jogged around with the players. And I think some advice to coaches is if the players know exactly what is coming, you're on a sticky wicket. Um, so, you know, so... I think there are lots of experiences like this that you could ignore them, but they stick with me. And, and I, I think that does shape, you know, the way I am. One thing you mentioned earlier, Pete, which, which really kind of resonated with me was, was using a voice recorder while, you, while you're observing practice and, and, and verbalizing some of the things that you see and then sharing that with the coach, which for me feels like you're, you're, you're nudging them towards becoming better at reflecting or reflecting on, on their practice. 
and and from yeah. some of the conversations we've had at UK Coaching recently are around well, if you take a, a coach who's a volunteer, potentially working in a grassroots setting, um, and they're they're trying to implement that plan do review cycle, as soon as someone gets busy, the review is likely to be one of the first things that that drops off, um, yeah. and and then it yeah. just becomes plan and do, plan and do. If if you were supporting coaches out in the field, what 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 advice would you give, or what what support could you offer to help them become more aware of the importance of reflection and, and trying to have a go at doing a bit more of it in in their practice? Yeah, I, I I know this is this is a buzzword that is you know been going around for a while, and I absolutely recognise the importance of reflection, but I think. How well do we help people to reflect? And I think it's all right saying, I need you to reflect on this and then feedback and and we'll chat about it. But I think there's a step before that where we actually say, do you know know how to reflect critically um, without being too harsh upon yourself? And, and, you know, the different ways that you can can reflect. And I, I think if we begin to open up that to the coaches, then their reflection as a result is going to be more sophisticated and, and more productive anyway. So I don't, I don't know how much time we actually spend with coaches, even before we ask them to reflect on how to actually do it effectively. I can I can resonate with that from, from having experiences of, of tutoring some FA courses. So you go through the plan do review model, and I, I would say that maybe less time is spent on talking about review because everybody wants to shine the spotlight on the on the planning and the doing yeah. and and yeah you're, you're right that, that almost ha- having some go-to um mechanisms of what what you could do to reflect might be really useful for coaching yeah because uh, i mean we, we can begin to break it down because we, we've obviously got you know your uh, reflection in action on action and all those those models that we can refer to so it's it's really asking questions like um as you were observing the session and saw the energy dip which it did at one point what was going through your mind and what might be one solution for you to breathe some more energy into it and then whatever whatever you decided to do how effective was that and the, the ways to breathe the energy can be coming from you, where you use your voice, your body language, you, you, you move quicker or you move in a different way. Or it can be to say, right, we're going to change the rules. These are now the new rules so that we can be quite sophisticated in how we help coaches begin to reflect both afterwards, but also during the whole, you know, potentially painful process anyway. So maybe not just re- labelling reflection as reflection, just, just some tactics to help coaches think in a more reflective way. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Pete, look, the only other thing I, I really wanted to touch on and, and, and chat through with you before we move on to our quickfire questions at the end was just around um, the experience you've got around designing qualifications and almost from, from your experience, what you feel would be really important points to consider if there's, a, if there's people out there and organizations out there who are looking at uh, developing or evolving the qualifications for the organizations that they work in or the sports that they work in, are there any principles or, or 
or points that you've used that have really helped shape that process? Oh, wow. Um, I think it, it always helps to have a clear vision of the level of the qualification so that you know what the operating standards are for level two, level three, level four, or whatever. And then almost working back from that, we're going through, I don't know whether it's, it's exactly the same, uh, Tom, but we're looking at some, some, a piece of work that is looking at invasion games and for, for me, for foundation phase players, what do they need to be good at to be an effective invasion game player? And do you know what? It's made me have sleepless nights because I've tried to get it down to some three key things that regardless of everything else, if you don't do these three things, particularly technically, or you can't do these three things, you are not going to be able to impose yourself on an invasion game. So I think a deep investigation or interrogation of some of the key concepts that you're trying to uh, communicate through your courses is a really productive time. Our, our game of football is obviously an invasion game. And yet we've, we've piled layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of content and information and research onto the top. We're now trying to dig through all of that and say, well, what diamonds or nuggets is that all of those layers hiding? Because to make our messages really simple and clear, we need to know what those diamonds are. And uh, it, it's been a really, it's been an experience that's caused me a lot of soul searching, a lot of sleepless nights at the moment. So I think that that whole process, when you're designing learning for others, you have to really focus in on what's the whole purpose of this. I don't know whether that's answered it, but I no, think that, that was a bit of therapy for me, Tom. I was very <laughs> No, Pete, I think, I think that's really illuminating. And, and for lots of coach developers or, or people who are in organizations where they have a, a hand in the design of qualifications or courses or modules, I think that really kind of gives a, a really nice overview of actually what, what's important or, or where do you start from, what's your starting point or, or what's the end in mind to work backwards from. Yeah, we've also talked uh, as a group about the whole language, terminology and linguistics that's going to surround this because that's your mechanism for communicating what those diamonds are out to the, the wider public. And, and I'm not sure there's as much time spent on the language and linguistics involved as there, as there might be so that you can be really clear and concise and consistent with the language and terminology that you use. That's really interesting. Does, does that have, resonate with, with the way that you have developed the England DNA or, uh, it's for the foundation phase um, to kind of give some really clear headings for what a foundation player, foundation phase player should be really good at at different ages and stages of their development? Yes, definitely. Um, in fact, we're, we're now ready to really begin to consolidate what the next phase is. So our, 
there were phrase stay on the ball, there was a little bit of a pushback from coaches who were saying, Pete, surely you're not advocating that children are ball greedy or very selfish with the ball. Um, I think with this next layer, they will understand why staying on the ball is so important because the next layer involves players staying on the ball and being really comfortable doing that in order to deploy some a wider range of individual tactics when they've got the ball at their feet. But you can't deploy those individual tactics about um, enticing and attracting opponents or changing the situation in the game if, right from the start, you lose the ball. So we almost had to put a step in, and it was a very dramatic step about, look, across the board, players have got to be encouraged to stay on the ball for longer. But I, I didn't tell them the second bit, which would have explained why we need them to stay on the ball. That why is now coming out, and I'm hoping it will allow coaches to, for the pennies to drop and for them to say, I get it now. Because without players being able to stay on the ball, they're not able to do this next bit. And it's the context of, of where it fits within the bigger picture of their, their overall development as, as players and young people. Exactly. Even the language you use there, Pete, around enticing and attracting opponents, it just illustrates, and I think this probably links back to your point just before about the terminology you use to make this really clear and simple. It just illustrates a picture of what that looks like and what it might feel like as a player or as a coach to see it happen. Yeah, I think we, we've spent a lot of an, an, uh, an inordinate amount of time on individual techniques with this turn, that turn, this dribble move, this, this that and the other. We've really ignored individual tactics. So I can actually change the tempo or flow of the game by slowing it down because I want you as my immediate opponent to be drawn towards the ball. That is going to change the situation I'm in. It's going to give my teammates an opportunity to take up different positions. And now, because I've attracted you towards me, I'm going to take you out of the game with my next action. So that's nothing to do with a technique or a turn or the Cruyff. This is about you being so comfortable on the ball, you are now going to be more cunning and more sneaky and trickier. And, and we're going to add that to this capability of staying on the ball. I'm just so excited by it, Tom. Wow. As you can wow. probably tell. <laughs> I can tell. And, and if, if anyone can see me right now, Pete, I'm just grinning from ear to ear listening to you talk about it. <laughs> I just hope the coaches feel the same. But oh, sure I, I think there's something in it. I'm and that, sure Tom, the, those individual tactics is almost saying to the players, we want you to develop these superpowers. Because who doesn't want to be you know, cunning and, and really, um, I, I wouldn't use the word deceitful because that obviously has negative connotations, but who wants to really attract and disrupt and disorganise the opponents by what you do on the ball? I think that is a superpower that every child would want. Absolutely. It sounds fascinating, Pete. I, I cannot wait for the next stage to, to, to be released and to come out. <laughs> Pete, thank you so much for your time. We've got a couple of quick-fire questions to finish this off. Yeah. So please don't feel like you need to give a detailed answer. Just really the first thing that, that springs into your mind. Um, oh and we've covered, we've covered off a couple on the, on the discussion already, so I'm going to leave, leave two out. Um, so we should have five questions to go through. So um, 
reflecting back on your on your career and your journey, both inside and outside of football, what would you say has been the most important important accomplishment in your career so far? Oh wow! Um, I'm reacting positively when an 11 year old boy took my shirt and said, "Pete, this is boring." <laughs> Because for days and weeks after that, I was horrified. And for me to bounce back from that, because I was in the doldrums for a long time, Tom, but it was such a wake-up because with, with where I'd come from, I thought I knew best. And, you know, it, it suddenly opened up a whole new way of thinking. So my reaction, or my positive reaction to that dagger through the heart is probably one of my best accomplishments. Fantastic. I think we could talk for 20 more minutes about that. But <laughs> um, awesome. Uh, next one, Pete. That would be uh, a therapy session, by the way. <laughs> I'm not qualified for that. Um, um, what advice would you give to anyone wanting to enter the world of developing other coaches? Developing other coaches? Yeah, so as a, as a coach developer. This is going to be, sound really simplistic, and I think most people do it with this in mind. It's It's got to be with the best intentions. It's not to hold power over other people. It's to really mirror what we try to do with our players and release their potential so that they can become independent of us because of the work and support that we've given them. Almost coaching yourself redundant to a degree. I use that phrase all the time, Tom, because if we've done our job really well, the players don't need us anymore. And for me, I don't see that as a bad thing. I see that as a huge success. Absolutely. Um, Pete, you mentioned superpowers a moment ago. Um, what would be yours? Me? Um, I have the patience of a saint. And sometimes that can work against me because there are things that I shouldn't be patient about, but I am. Um, and I also think I, I really care for the kids, whether I'm meeting them for the first time or whether it's a group that I, I've worked with for, uh, and, and I've been in this position. I've had some children who I've worked with for a decade. And those children still come up to me in Tesco's, even though they're much taller than me now, and pat me on the head and say, Pete, do you remember me? And th that is such a, a nice feeling. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping it would come because I cared for them and I was, you know, really kind about and patient about their development. Fantastic. Um, last two, Pete, and you can answer this one in whichever way you want. So what is the last book that you read? Or um, if you were to gift a book, to everybody listening to the podcast, what book would you recommend everybody went and went away and, and had a look at? Well, um, the last book I read was uh, one by Khaled Hosseini. It's uh, A Thousand Splendid Sons. It's about Afghanistan and the Taliban and the society that, that people were were growing up in and and being part of there. It's a very brutal book, but I have read it seven times, the last time fairly recently. Um, so that's the last one. One that I would ask everyone to read 
is Captain Corelli's mandolin. Okay. Nothing to do with sports or coaching or whatever, but as a language, uh, my degree is in language and literature. Um, and it's just such a beautifully written book and his, his use of language. When I first read it, even though I was a liter liter lit literature grad, I read it with a, a dictionary next to me because I hadn't some of the words I just didn't know, but it was so beautiful. Wow. Wow. Fantastic. I, I, if, if I'm sorry. Ever... I'm sorry for the coaches who might eventually listen to this that I haven't, you know, talked about John Wooden or this coach or that coach, but they, that, that's the kind of stuff that I might read away from coaching almost as a bit of a release. Mm, mm, absolutely. No, I think, um, and that's important, isn't it? It's not, it kind of can't always be about the coaching and, and actually other influences and, and looking on the, the fringes of our worlds are actually, actually are really important. Um, Pete, last question. Um, what, what is it that inspires you to keep doing what you do? Um, th this is going to sound very arrogant and I, I'm really not. I've always wanted to be, once I decided that this was a career path, and something that I was fairly good at. I wanted to be the voice for all the children who were involved in football who may not be getting a great deal. And if their voice wasn't being heard, I wanted to eventually be in a position where I could be that voice just to ensure that the experiences that we were providing for them were as positive and memorable as possible. Fantastic. That's quite religious and biblical, that, isn't it? Though? It is. It, it, it feels like a fitting way to um, a fitting way to, to draw the sermon to a close. <laughs> um, well, I often talk about I'm on a crusade, and it, it it's not elevating my position, but that's how passionately I feel about it. So, you know, I hope someday people will say, "Do you know what that old fella? He 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 made a little bit of a difference." Oh, I think I think they probably already do, Pete. Um, I think they already do. No, I think this last hour has been just illuminating, fascinating, and to just look a little bit deeper into into Pete's kind of toolbox of coaching has has just been extraordinary. Um, so, but thank you so much for for your time and for sharing and for for being really open and honest with, with everything you, you you've talked about today. Thanks, Tom. I've uh, really enjoyed it. You made it. You made it easy. <laughs> You're too kind. <laughs> Cheers, Pete. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.